we've taken a lot of the bias out of investing decisions because the old human to human model is just prone with our inherent biases. It's impossible not to have that. And so when you look at data, we have no idea where you are and what skin color you're is and where you grew up. And then the importance of a resilient culture and the ability to inspire adaptability amongst your team, figuring out ways to support them even when it's not kind of one-on-one -on -one and in the office as we've all grown up getting used to, this is a totally different environment. And I think your team needs to be resilient and adaptable to figure it all out. Welcome to Joyful Sundays, a podcast delivering weekly insights inspiration, and tools to live a more conscious, connected, and intentionally meaningful life. Join us as we go into the minds of some of the world's most inspiring leaders to discover the keys to unlocking your best self. In the midst of a global pandemic, there has never been a more important time to reflect on how we want to emerge, what we value, who we are at our cores and how we want to reflect those North Star values in the lives we build post a global crisis. I'm your host, Jody Kovitz. Who doesn't know tech titan Michelle Romano? She's an investor and serial entrepreneur known for starting five companies before her 33rd birthday, a dragon on CBC's hit show, Dragon's Den. I'm lucky to call her my friend. Romano is also the co-founder and president of ClearBank, her latest venture. It's a VC firm that specializes in non-dilutive revenue share agreements with startups. It's super cool and encourage all of you to check it out. Mike is the co-founder and CEO of Canadian success story while simple. He's also my brother. Mike had a simple idea, an investing revolution that won over millennials, and in a few years, it has grown to manage over six billion in assets and has over 370,000 clients, including me. While the world sees a tech icon who's won numerous awards for his success scaling his company, I know Mike as my baby brother who's kind and funny and who I'll always remember catching frogs in a swamp when he was six. Michelle, Mike, it is such a joy to have you on my show today. Welcome to Joyful Sundays. Thank you both for joining me today. I'm so delighted to have you together on Joyful Sundays. Let's start here. We're three and a half months into the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we get into it today, I'd love to ask each of you how you're doing and how are your families doing, Michelle? We're doing okay. I think uh, for an extrovert, this is its own particular type of health because I have seen so few people. But, you know, we're healthy and able to work and have not been on the front lines. And so I consider myself fairly lucky. It's hard not to be super grateful and at the same time, totally normal that we all have our own challenges. So I appreciate you sharing that. Mike, how are you doing? We're doing okay, too. I think it's been a trying time for everybody for all sorts of reasons now. We, on the personal side, welcomed a new baby in the midst of this pandemic. You know, we had all sorts of fears about what that hospital experience was going to be like, which didn't come to pass. And thankfully, we're all home now, healthy and enjoying some special family time, which has been one of the silver linings of the pandemic is getting to be home with the family way more than in normal times. And so I have not been able to hold Auntie my Jody. little baby now. <laughs> yes, it's true. I have not been able 
been able to hold my nephew, but it is love that I sat outside a screened porch in the pouring hail <laughs> so I could look at his face for an hour. <laughs> and it gave me a great amount of joy. So Mike, you actually introduced me to Michelle many years ago now when I was just starting to formulate the concept of Move the Dial. And Michelle, I'll actually never forget your generosity of spirit in meeting with me that day, how you showed up sharing ideas and how much you've actually supported me every single time I've asked since then. It's truly remarkable. I'd love to share the story of how the two of you met. Mike, do you want to share a little bit about how you and Michelle first met? She's going to keep me honest if I remember right, but I think we met via Andrew at Dark Horse Coffee. You had just been asked to be a dragon. You hadn't even done it yet, agreed to do it yet, I think. And you were like thinking through, does this make sense for me? What's this going to mean for my career? And Andrew and I had been friends, you know, since our early career and trips from Toronto down to San Francisco, where he convinced me to make the move down there and then come back again. And I just moved back to the city and was trying to start this little thing called Well Simple. And he was like, you should meet Michelle. I think that's how it all came to be. We sat for coffee and you were debating, should I be a dragon? That's remarkable. You remember that. But I completely remember that day and we sat on the patio outside. And as a result of that conversation, Michelle, I think if I'm correct, you and your business and life partner invested very early in Well Simple. Is that right? Yeah. And I was like, this Mike guy, he's like got something. <laughs> and I think it's this combination of like, he could totally see the bigger vision that, you know, it was insane that wealth management was basically just left for wealthy people. I mean, I think it's the best part of technology is that you can tear down these barriers that we had that really divided us. And then I remember just thinking that Mike was a true risk taker because Andrew told me this story of how Mike came to him early and was like, look, I think at McKinsey still at the time, you know, I got a great opportunity at a private equity fund. And Andrew's like, no, just move down to San Francisco now. Like you got into Y Combinator, just do it. And he took the plunge. And those are ultimately the founders that I think are always successful are the ones that are completely willing to take risks to bet on themselves and then to believe and build a better future. I love that. And you've gone from probably doing some angel investing in those kinds of ideas to becoming you know, an investor, of course, through Dragon's Den, but much more significantly. I'd love you to tell us a little bit about ClearBank, which, of course, now you're sort of democratizing access at scale. I would love also for you to share what you've been doing in this pandemic in particular, which I've deeply admired from the sideline. So, you know, I think it's rare you get an amazing idea from reality television. But that's actually what happened to me. I mean, one of the things that most people don't know about Dragon's Den is that we see 250 pitches in 17 days. That's a lot. Even if you're a VC, you're not seeing that volume. And so think about the show. A lot of physical product companies, a lot of e-commerce companies, they're all coming on the show and they're like, look, I'm looking for 100 grand for... 10% of my company and the dragons are like, what do you need that money for? And they're like, we need to do growth. And what does growth translate into these days? It's buying ads. And I just remember seeing after the like 50th pitch that sounded the same. I'm like, this is actually not a good deal for either the investor or the founder. Because let's say you're selling wooden iPhone cases. That's an awesome business. I remember it was a father-son team. They had incredible unit economics, cost them $10 in ad spend, and they sold the case for 50 bucks. But that's not a company that's going to be bought by Apple for a 10 times multiple. And so I actually remember it was on the show for the first time that I was like, look, 
I'll give you the hundred grand you're looking for. But instead of taking equity and control of your company, what I want is just a really simple revenue share. Give me 5% of your revenue until you pay me back my $100,000 plus 6%. So $106,000. I said, the only hitch to my money is that I want to see your Facebook ad account. <laughs> and I want to see if you're truly, you know, as efficient as you said. But, you know, this was designed to be super fair. There was no personal guarantees. This wasn't debt. There was no fixed payment timeline or compounding interest. It was like, surely could I just set up a rev share with these founders? And I never guessed from there that we would have gotten to the scale that we've become. So we've now invested over a billion dollars in 2,500 e-commerce companies. You know, now we're the largest e-commerce investor in the world. And it's because we rebuilt the model on how to do this. There's no way we could have done 2,500 deals if a human was looking at every one of them. And so we used AI to look at all these companies, you know, and now our capital can be used for ad spend or inventory or frankly, anything that your business needs. And one of the results of that is that we've taken a lot of the bias out of investing decisions. Because the old human-to-human -human model is just prone with our inherent biases. It's impossible not to have that. And so when you look at data, we have no idea where you are and what skin color you're is and where you grew up. And as a result of that, we've invested in entrepreneurs in all 50 states in America. This is compared to a venture industry where 80% of the dollars went into four states in America last year, and there were nine states. It basically was an industry that said, if you went to the right school and knew the right people and got a truly a warm emailed introduction, this is an industry that doesn't take cold emails, then you could be a part of the club where you get to build a better business. And I just always thought that was deeply unfair. And so we've seen that. I mean, we've backed eight times more women than the venture capital industry average, much higher indexed on minorities. And we're really proud of that. And we think that that builds a true competitor to venture capital. I love that. And I think for me, what I'm so fascinated by around ClearBank and frankly, similarly with Wealthsimple, which I'd love, Michael, you to tell us about in a second, is this democratized access and using technology and simplifying a process to democratize access to industries that really have not been accessible for the majority of the population historically. So Mike, with that, can you tell us a little bit about Wealthsimple and what you do and how you've scaled over the last number of years? Just to use the same language of democratizing access, our mission is all about democratizing access to the tools of building financial freedom. And so that's good saving and investment products that's going to be over time, responsible credit. You know, all the things that people know are really important for building towards the lives they want, but unfortunately have been really inaccessible. Historically, unless you had a lot of money, you couldn't really access great investment advisors or investment advice or investment products. And even if you had that kind of money, the experience was really confusing and complicated, and it was way too expensive. And so we use technology and design to humanize it, make it really simple, and remove the barriers so that you can get started with a really great investment solution, just a dollar in your account. And we've been fortunate that, you know, over the last five years, we've built a business that today manages about $8 billion for a few hundred thousand clients. We're live in Canada, the US and the UK. We have investment products, trading products for people that like to do their own investing, tax product to help you fill out your taxes are just getting started in this kind of vision of democratizing access to really smart financial tools. I appreciate that so much. And can you talk a little bit about 
something you've learned through the experience of continuing to scale your company through this pandemic because you were on a and have been on a massive accelerated track in terms of scaling the company. And then a global pandemic hits just after you get new office space and everybody has to go home. If you've seen one key insight that you can share with our listeners in terms of how you as a leader and Wealthsimple has responded, would love to hear it. It's a tough one because we're still learning and navigating this process. And I think it's pretty unprecedented. For us, we've been enormously lucky. So our businesses benefited from some acceleration through the pandemic, which was not something we ever anticipated. And so our trading business in particular, well, simple trade, which is an app on your phone that you can use to buy and sell stocks and ETFs, is just going through a phenomenal amount of growth right now. As people saw the dip in the stock market as an opportunity to really get in at a discounted price. That has cushioned a lot of the blow of this that a lot of other companies are feeling in terms of massively down revenues and the need for layoffs. So we fortunately not have to go down that path. I think, though, the thing that it's really exposed for a lot of businesses is the importance of discipline in terms of how you build your business so that you don't have too much of a cost structure that if situation changes and the rug gets pulled out from under your feet, you're able to pivot and flex in a really quick and seamless way. And then the importance of a resilient culture and the ability to inspire adaptability amongst your team, figuring out ways to support them, even when it's not kind of one-on-one and in the office, as we've all grown up getting used to, this is a totally different environment. And I think your team needs to be resilient and adaptable to figure it all out. I would totally agree with Mike. I've thought a lot about discipline. I wrote a little post-it note on my computer screen when this started that said wartime CEO. And it really meant that like, Michelle, every day is going to be very hard. (laughs) And I was trying to like mentally prepare myself for that. Businesses that grow very quickly often get incredibly bloated cost structures because the cost of speed is often very real because you can't make the same sort of discipline decision-making. And so when things contract, you have to be really careful around that. And then this need to adapt is super important. And so if I was to kind of summarize what I've been seeing through COVID, it's like, was I going to use this as like a fixed mindset or like a growth mindset? And I kept having to keep reminding myself of this because it is very easy when bad things happened to just be like, this is terrible. I cannot believe the world is happening like this. You know, we were just finding our stride. We had made so many good changes, January, February, March, my whole to-do list on everything that I was pursuing is completely useless at this point. And frankly, that's okay to feel devastated. And so I kind of said, look, you know, you have to shift yourself, Michelle, to a growth mindset. Like, what is this trying to teach you? What can you learn from this? How can you adapt the company around this? And I think like Mike, we had a lot of tailwinds that came into this. And so in the e-commerce space, e-commerce penetration in the United States has gone from 14% of retail sales to 28% of retail sales in eight weeks. To put that in perspective, it's like a decade of acceleration. We think we're operating on what we thought was going to happen in 2030 now in 2020. And so that gave us a lot of ability to say, okay, although we're scared, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We're effectively in credit. And so we need to be a little bit more conservative. How do we take advantage and how do we really back our founders? And so we launched a product called Runway that was all about using your capital to extend your runway, which is what every founder is thinking about. I did some of my own initiatives around bringing PPE into the country. And so I think today we've brought in over 10 million masks, over 2 million gowns. If you put that in perspective, that's 
15, 1.5% of what the Canadian government has been able to procure. Honestly, and it takes people like you standing up and doing it. So thank you from all of us, because it has to be done. Thank you. No, and Jody, you were very helpful in connecting me to some of the right people. But it's exactly that. You have to think of like, when we are in a crisis, what is my unique skill set that could be helpful at this moment right now? And with 10 years of backing e-commerce companies, I know a lot of people that could make a lot of things in China. <laughs> so we used what we thought could be helpful to know to really scale up safe direct. And so I think that was my big learning is how do I move? Because I'm not I'm not different than everyone else. I still have those same feelings of like, what the fuck is this happening? This is really terrible. I don't like being at home. I love being with my team and being like, okay, how do you change this so that you're growing from this experience, not Michelle, not letting it destroy you? I'm so grateful around your authentic sharing of that because I think the daily struggle around mindset that probably every single person has had. There's been ups, there's been downs for different reasons at different phases of this experience. And I actually really think that us talking openly about the moments that are really hard really matter. And I'm fascinated by sort of mindset and the tactical thought of like wartime CEO post-it note is really powerful because it's like, how do we keep ourselves in that mindset when we have our own families to worry about and our employees and our business and our boards? And when you talk about runway and the need for it, like I'll never forget the moment Mike called me a couple days into this situation was like, how much runway do you have? And the greatest lesson I can share with my listeners is the importance of really controlling the growth in future next time I build move the dial or another thing because while scaling quickly is incredible and it's it was an incredible feeling when you're left with such a significant cost structure when your revenue isn't diversified enough to handle it or you don't have enough runway, you have to pivot pretty fast. So really grateful that you created a product that can help others deal with that. So we're three white, super privileged people. And in this moment in time, what's going on in history, we're recording this for the purpose of the community a couple of weeks after Floyd's senseless death in the US and murder. I've been reflecting deeply on this moment. I'm hoping that this is going to be a big step forward in this movement. And there's moments where I get it wrong. I don't say the right thing. I'm not sure what to say. I try to stand in solidarity with and get called in, which is extremely important and out many times. Would love to share and discuss how you've each been supporting your Black employees, any insights you've learned, just to share with our audience as we all continue to become educated and become better allies during this very difficult time. The last two weeks have been, I think, the hardest I have ever experienced as a CEO. And I don't say that because I'm not sorry for myself, because I think that I've learned just so much about how difficult life has been for marginalized communities in the Black community in particular. And this has been a really difficult few weeks for our company in terms of the conversations that it started. We had always valued diversity and inclusion and had many initiatives underway. But I think the thing that has become super clear is that we didn't move fast enough or go far enough to truly build the kind of inclusive culture that you know we aspire to. If you look at our executive ranks and our board, like we have um, a ways to go still. And I've been grateful that we've had really deep engagement from our team, even in the midst of this difficult time, because it's not their responsibility and there's so much pain that people are going through that want to see, well, simple, get better that know that it's something we're committed to and have just been enormously moving and powerful as we think about, you know, how to do that. And we're still working on exactly how do we think about making deep and long lasting commitments that really do, and I'll use your word, move the dial for us 
over the long term as opposed to really rushing for a gesture that is more hollow. And so we had a huge all-hands meeting that was scheduled for a half an hour, and it went for two hours, where we just had a very open discussion as a company about what are we doing well, where have we not done well, and what are the ways that we uniquely have to drive impact long-term. Thank you so much for sharing that, Mike. It's so heavy, but it's so important to talk about it. Michelle, would love to hear any thoughts that you would like to add. This is the time to listen. And I think when we see this, it was like we had these three big incidences in the U.S., and that was just a fraction of what's happening every day. I was invited to join this call with a bunch of Black founders in the U.S., and all of them had gone to Ivy League schools. And it was really incredible because I just truly sat there and listened. And even at the level where you've gone to the best school and raised multiple rounds of venture capital and all of this... Every single one of these founders had basically had a horrific experience with the police. And I was kind of overwhelmed that, first of all, I didn't know that was so much a part of the daily experience. And so I think Mike's right. This is a watershed moment for all of us and for all of us to really listen and realize and figure out how to be a true ally in this space. Because I don't think we'll ever fully understand, but we can be allies. And so we've opened up that discussion at ClearBank as well. I think I'm like you, I worry all the time about saying the right thing or the wrong thing. And now I'm just like, I have to say something. Even just prefacing it with, I don't know if I fully have the right words to do this. And I do believe that the thing that can be a great equalizer is technology. And we've seen that with what Mike has built. We've seen the early stages of that and what ClearBank has built. And we're looking at how do we use our own products to build the next generation of Black founders. Because I think when you build businesses, and entrepreneurs are very powerful in the way that they can change the world and they can change the narrative. And so like them, you know, instead of looking at something that we can do that looks more like a gesture, we're really looking at how do we build some pretty incredible products that can hopefully have a contribution in solving this hugely important problem. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think the only insight I can add to what you've both said is sort of the experience, and I had one this morning, of when we're called in, listening deeply and understanding that as people who are white, we have a very serious and significant role to play in how we listen and how we grow as a result of being called in when it happens and inviting that as we sort of move through the journey. I just add that I think you said it, and I think Michelle said it too, and you know, I think one of the bigger learnings for me on this road of learning and allyship has been, as you said, the need to just start engaging and listening. And everybody who is early in that journey and even on their content continuation will make mistakes in what they said. We have a phrase we're using to help people get comfortable with this concept of stepped in it a few times this week as I've tried to engage on this with our team. But as you said, I think that staying silent is not an option and it's okay to step in it as you learn to be a better ally. Those of us that are reaching for very high goals and demand a lot of ourselves, as I know the three of us do, might get a little perfectionist-y about wanting to say the right thing and do the right thing. And that perfectionism might hold us back from doing anything. So I think it's really important for us to be willing to take steps that we think are in the right direction, trying, and understand that we are on a journey 
and we can bring a growth mindset to the steps that we take with perfect being the enemy of good. And it's so much of the founder mindset. I think the intention here matters so much more. And I've seen that too. It was like, I felt the need to reach out to a lot of people and say like, I don't know what to say, but I just wanted to let you know that I'm an ally here for you. Yeah, and I think that's the right thing to say. I'm really glad we talked about that. I think it's an ongoing dialogue and we all have to keep talking about it. One of the things that I think the purpose of this podcast, like the idea of this podcast came to me around really trying to think about how when we're in a painful moment, such as the pandemic, such as this moment in time, watershed moment where we're confronting anti-Black racism straight on, how do we want to emerge differently as a result of being called to become aware of what our North Star values are? And that's really the next question I have for each of you upon going through this experience, having cause to pause and be much more in tune with ourselves. Are there any sort of insights that you have about how you might want to live differently emerging from the pandemic. Maybe I'll start with your perspective, Michelle. I saw the funniest meme that said something like, can we just get back to normal so I can stop taking all the things for granted that I used to take for granted? (laughs) You know, sometimes you get eight words that have a lot of truth in them. And there's no question when you go through an experience like this that we all shared that just immense amount of gratitude I had for some of the things in my life before. Like I remember even week three, I was like, I would kill to do anything to just have like tacos and beers with friends, right? So I think that's part of it. I think one of the things that I realized is that my joy at work doesn't always come from like the work in the building, which I thought it did. It actually comes from like these really close relationships I have with people. And it's not like I'm not spending 12 hours a day on Zoom calls with the same people, but there's something about physically being around people, I think especially for extroverts, that gives me personally so much energy. And it's like the high fives and looking at the same whiteboard and it's the excitement around solving problems that I think I'm probably like the most grieving, (laughs) the saddest for. Like I feel like a lot of the joy has been pulled out of work. And I keep telling founders like now is the right time to build. And I believe that's the truth, right? You know, there's no travel, like we can actually have a big amount of kind of deep workspace to really be building. And I'm super excited. Like next January, I think we're going to see an enormous amount of innovation in the economy because we've had so many people that have been focused on building, but I miss my team. I miss those interactions. And I think I'm just thinking a lot about if there's any other ways to create those. I think it's been really eye-opening how much work you can get done without, I think, the assumed structures that if you grew up in an office environment, you know, you assume need to be there, how many fewer meetings you have to have. And I appreciate that. I appreciate being able to be at home more, work from home more, and creating space to really think, which is one of the things I have really enjoyed of having a less packed calendar over the last few months of space to think. And so, Carrying that with me, I think, is going to be an important work tool as we get back to normalcy whenever that happens. And I still think it's unfortunately a long ways away. Yeah, and whatever that looks like. And so as we start to wrap, I'd love to just ask you, both of you inspire a lot of people. And so a lot of what I think deeply about how we cultivate mindfulness and joy. Can you talk about how you've been in your own sort of way, cultivating mindfulness, taking care of your own body, mind, souls? Because I know that'll inspire many people. Michelle, I know you do a lot of amazing physical activity. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you take care of yourself. 
I'm not perfect, right? Like I wish I was one of these people that didn't look at my phone first thing in the morning. I know people like meditate and do a great job of that right in the morning. And I'm like, I just tell me that there's nothing blowing up. And I'm like, okay, as soon as I like do the quick scan of my phone and nothing is blown up, I'm like, okay, now I can go to be mindful. I don't think that's the best practice, but it's my practice. I think that it's very real. I found, I got one of these Pelotons and it has been such an important tool for me. Like I just keep telling myself when I'm angry, I'm like, leave it all on the bike. <laughs> like Just like leave every piece of discomfort you have there. And I always joke, I have no idea if the people that I'm competing with are real. And like, I think I can get into the top 1% of a class now. So I'm still like, oh, there's 3000 people in front of me and I'm just visualizing that. And so exercise has been an incredible tool for me. And then I think the last thing is just trying to keep these relationships that really ground us and move us forward. And I've probably leaned on my friends and my other founders that have been part of my journey for a long time and in a way more meaningful way. And not being afraid to ask and say like, I'm not okay. And I'm like close to a breaking point because I think we've all experienced a huge amount of emotions and a huge amount of emotions that are usually by ourselves, right? One of the things I realized about kind of my old life is that there was a huge stream of like effective distractions, right? So it's like, even if you had a really bad meeting or a really bad incident, it was like, okay, now you had to like go and meet another group of people. And somehow that could transform your mood, right? Because you have to think about another topic. And now that we're a little bit by ourselves, those moments can weigh on us a lot harder. And some of those things are internal things we need to solve with ourselves. And that weight is important for us to take the time to kind of work through those issues. And other times it's just important to be able to have people in your life, you know, your closest friends and allies that can really help build you back up. I love that. Mike, how do you cultivate mindfulness in your life? I mean, because I'm your sister, I happen to know a few of these little tricks and habits, but I would love you to share them with I'd our listeners. I'd be curious if you get the guess right. Okay. Well, one of them is, I know that Mike likes to typically go sit in a coffee shop with his journal and take some time to journal with whatever one excellent business book he's reading at the moment and to create time for that. So I hope you're still doing that at home. I have been trying to do that at home. That's a good one. That's amazing. I love that. And it, what a good practice to sit without your phone. It's really, really important, especially in today's age. I find it really, really useful. And, you know, my consistency has been off lately, but every chance I do sit down to do it, I always wish I did it more. And the second is to try and just get outdoors to the woods. Nothing does it for me quite like just some space in the woods, in the quiet. And Jody knows that too, that uh, my happy place is kind of in a canoe on the water somewhere. And hoping that now the weather has turned, I'll have the chance to do that a little bit more this summer as well. Well, my happy place is in that canoe too. I wish we could all three of us be in a canoe right now having this conversation. I know, me too. There's nothing that resets you quite like nature. So my community has thought of some questions that they'd love to have answered by you both. Number one, what is your favorite food, Michelle? Oh, pasta, without a doubt. <laughs> Mike. Pizza, carbs, you and me, we could yeah. do this. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite personal travel destination, Mike. Oh, the woods, Algonquin Park. Michelle. Oh, more random the better. So like home of pasta, Italy, home of adventure, Bali, and then home of amazingness that I was just at a Christmas, India. So beautiful. I loved watching your trip to India, by the way. I felt like I was with you. So please don't stop doing that when you're allowed to travel again. <laughs> Role model to each of you, Michelle. You know, I think my parents... They instilled a lot of early values that have just stuck with me. 
Mike. Can I say you? Oh, you're so sweet. Oh, thank you. Of course you. you can. Of course. <laughs> because you got me my journal and you teach me so much as my big, amazing sister about being a good person and having an open mind and being the kind of leader that I, I really admire. So Yeah, and not being afraid to step in it and not being afraid to take risks, Jody. Well, thank you both so much. I'm super grateful. We will leave it at that. I'm so grateful for your time today, both of you, and really excited to see what's going to come as we emerge out of the pandemic with both ClearBank and Wealthsimple and both of you as leaders and humans, I admire and respect deeply. Thank you so, so much for sharing your time and energy with us today. And can't wait to talk to you and see you both soon. Thank you for having us. It was fun. Yeah, this is really fun. It was great to be here with Mike and you. Reflecting on Mike and Michelle's stories make me think of three common elements that each of them share. First is big vision. Each of them, with respect to their current endeavors, Wealth Simple and ClearBank, had a massive vision to transform an industry, to really make what has always been elusive. So in Mike's case, investing, in Michelle's case, being invested in, had once been elusive, hard to access, highly complicated, simple, accessible, and scalable. And so that huge vision at the start, and frankly, a very powerful yet simple idea, is really inspiring to me. Next, in order to take that vision and be able to execute it, I think each of them are also highly skilled at and can inspire many of us around how to make a plan and then just start executing. Really remembering that perfect is the enemy of good. If you make a mistake, if you have to learn from a step you take to the right and go to the left, that willingness to be resilient, to be open to pivoting is something that each of them share. And that is really part of what makes entrepreneurs, in my view, successful. And last, but certainly not least, knowing them and also reflecting on my conversation with each of them today, possess a healthy mix of confidence in themselves with humility. And I think that that's a really important combination for entrepreneurs. You have to believe in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself and actually believe that the steps that you're taking to execute against your big vision are the right steps, or at least believe in yourself enough to try, you won't do it. So you have to have a really healthy dose of confidence, belief in yourself and conviction and trust in yourself and those steps. And I think that each of them have a really healthy mix of those two things. So loved talking to Mike and Michelle about their vision and how they execute it with a mix of confidence and humility. Thank you for listening to Joyful Sundays the podcast where I have truly inspiring conversations about how to become your best self. If you like this episode, support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating, and a comment. I'm your host, Jody Kovitz. See you next time on Joyful Sundays.